Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Rachel Treasure is one of Australia's most popular authors of women's fiction, credited with sparking a whole new subgenre of rural fiction with her groundbreaking romance, Jillaroo, a book that opened the floodgates for dozens more authors and readers of rural romance and country fiction to follow. And in her latest book, White Horses, nearly 20 years later, Rachel continues to smash conventions, blending her vision for a vital and thriving Australian agricultural sector with a young woman's mystical and romantic quest for identity. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler. And in today's binge reading episode, Rachel talks about dealing with life's curveballs, and she's had a few the boom in Australian women's fiction, and why she sees her role of mother as more important than any of the other titles like author and farmer that she wears with pride. You'll find links to Rachel's books and website on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Leave your suggestions and comments for us there. We love to hear from you. And if you enjoy the podcast, why not subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss future episodes? But now, here's Rachel. Hello there, Rachel, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Brilliant to be with you also, Jenny. Thank you for having me. So you're in Tasmania and I'm in New Zealand. We'll just get that clear for the people listening around the world. We've got listeners in Australia and the States, so it's good to know. That's brilliant. And we, we say we're over the ditch from you, for those of you who live internationally. We're just over the ditch from, from New Zealand, so. That's right. Look, you've had the kudos of having kick-started a whole new subgenre in fiction, and not many authors can say something like this. That was Australian rural romance with your first novel, Jillaroo, back in 2002. Now, many of the women authors that I've spoken to after the uh, over the last 18 months or so, they all credit you with starting that boom that there's been in women's fiction over the, it's nearly 20 years now. You've come a long way since then with what you're doing and the work you're doing now is not, it's gone a long way on past Jillaroo. But tell us about that first iconic book. How did you come to crack that? Oh, well, that goes back to childhood in the sense that my grandmother was a farmer, but she was also a writer. So she had radio plays published, I think even by the BBC, but she wrote children's books. So when I was growing up, I would see her clunking away on a um, typewriter and her name was Joan Wise. And so books and Indigenous story were a big part of her life and she imparted that to me back before that was really a thing. So I had this connection between land and writing and the ancient wisdom that comes with Indigenous dream dream stories. So Jillaroo was a step along from that where I went to an agricultural college and I'd been raised in Tasmania where the farming system was all integrated. So the bees played a part with the orchards and the orchards played a part with feeding the pigs and the pigs 
played a part with the milk coming from the dairy and the wool. My uncle and auntie would spin wool by hand. So I went to what we call the mainland in Australia and I started seeing corporate, commercial, industrial agriculture on a massive scale and it it would sit so uncomfortably with me. So when I went to study both agriculture and journalism, I knew I had to tell the feminine story of contemporary rural women. So my first character, Rebecca Saunders, was born. She was a messenger to say, look, women need to be left land, not just the men on the land title, and women need to be driving forward this integrated system. So it wasn't as clear cut back then. I wanted to write a rollicking tale. Anyway, I worked at my craft for 10 years as a rural journalist and I joined writing groups back before email was a thing. So I really persisted and I studied a Bachelor of Arts in creative writing as well. So it kind of everything was leading me towards this one novel, which was picked up off a slush pile, would you believe? So that is remarkable because as we've agreed, traditional publishers are usually not very willing to explore a new thing. They like to be able to settle. And I guess there must have been enough that was recognisable in Jillaroo as a rollicking romance to make them think, oh, well, we'll, we'll do this one, even though it's set in the country or whatever. Was that what happened? Yes, it was. I had gained a writer's uh, mentorship through the Tasmanian Writers' Centre. So a wonderful poet called Robin Friend had guided me through story arc and story structure. So when I did hand the manuscript in, it was quite sharp. But the publisher, she said to me, it was Claire Forster back in the day. And Claire said, Rebecca Saunders was one of the most refreshing heroines she'd ever read. But could we do something about the swearing? So... (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, farm girls can cuss. I think, I don't think Penguin really recognised what they had in their hands at the time. And I begged for them to put a cover quote on by a very famous now Australian country musician called Lee Kernigan. That is not heard of in literary circles. You normally put other author quotes on the cover. But because I was a nobody, um, they said, sure, put Lee Kernigan on the, on the front cover. And that named it up to my readership who are authentic country people. I also, on the original cover of Jillaroo, requested a real horse and a real farmer and real mountains and a real woman, you know, like not the Photoshop version of the romantic notion. But since Jillaroo, the genre has almost consumed itself with that romance theme and I've almost written myself outside of the genre 20 years on, which is kind of exciting. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. Your website these days makes it very clear up front how you see yourself. It's not really a traditional author website because you've got it there and really bold right in front of you. You say you're a mother, regenerative agriculturist and author. And I wondered if you really do see author as the third string in your bow. Oh, I love this question, Jenny. I was pondering it today and I I believe that motherhood is the most under-revered role that a woman can take and I wanted to name motherhood up first because if we were celebrated first and foremost by our culture as mothers, we wouldn't be at war with Mother Nature and putting chemicals on our baby's food in in the paddock. We wouldn't be sending our babies off to war so for me, motherhood is the most important role 
not in the have a perfect house, but have that innate wisdom that says I am one part in a long, long chain of the future. And so I want to impart that to my children. The other thing about motherhood links in perfectly with agriculture. The earth is our mother. So at the moment we are destroying and cannibalizing our mother. So again, I wanted to put regenerative agriculture which is all about partnering with mother nature it's not about turning hippie and doing away with all the technology that we've we've managed to create you know the, some of the stuff out there is wonderful but I wanted to say let's regenerate our mother and of course all of that experience that I have hands-on on the farm and with my children goes into the writing aspect so I guess it's all integrated but it was a very deliberate move to put mother up there first that's fantastic. And your most recent novel, White Horses, your seventh novel, brings out that regenerative agriculture theme in incredibly clearly. You couldn't read the book and not know that it's there, but it weaves beautifully into the story. So I don't believe that you feel you're being preached at, but it seems as if you've always perhaps had that sense of a deeper social and generational concern with the stories that you've been framing. Would that be fair comment? That is an absolutely accurate comment. I always wanted to write stories that were challenging, but by the end of it, uplifting and transformative. So even though I put my readers through some very tough scenes, that's just life. Like life throws us some huge curveballs and it's how we respond rather than react to those. And so it has been a very deliberate move to challenge my readers with every book. Um, I could just write a book a year that comes out for Christmas that makes people feel tingly, but I wanted women in particular to pick up these books and feel like they transcend themselves as women because our culture isn't teaching us how to do this and so I know some of some readers may turn away and go and read something that's less challenging but at the end of the day you always know with a Rachel Treasure it's going to uplift you by the end of it and I've even had farmers now who have read White Horses and they've come up to meet males and they've said they're going home to change their land management so I think story is such a powerful tool to transcend what is in the cognitive brain that churns over every day. And if, if I can make my readers really feel emotion, it may change their actions in their day-to-day. Yeah. The central character of White Horses is a young woman called Drift, raised by her father in remote parts of Western Australia. So she's she's grown up outside the normal social norms and she probably doesn't have a very good grip on just what is quite expected of a young woman. You give us a vision of a vibrant and thriving rural Australia, but you don't dodge some of the more brutal aspects of farm culture as it is. And she has to face up to two really nasty sexual assaults that quite unprotected in, in the environment she's in. And at first it seems fairly hopeless that she is going to find justice. Luckily, I won't give away any storylines, but there is a sense that, that at the beginning that the forces against her are really rather too big for her to overcome. Tell us a bit about that. Did you see that kind of thing yourself as a young woman in farming? Well, I think it's not just in farming. I think as I had a childhood that was in Hobart as well, which was the major city in Tasmania, and alcohol is 
the legal drug of choice for many Australians. We self-medicate on that. And so I saw a lot of young women putting themselves at risk in really vulnerable situations. And when you dovetail that with a lack of self-esteem, because you have a culture that brings down your power as a, as a female due to media and advertising and pornography. I saw that as a young woman. And without going into details, let's just say most of my experience and my friends, men don't get that these sorts of situations that drift encounters, it never goes through a judicial system. It doesn't get to a legal system because it's kind of just part of the culture. So I really wanted to showcase that in my character Drift, who is a young woman, with it, she she doesn't have access to a mobile phone until much later on in her life. And I see the young women in in the world now that have these mobile phones and screens that are sh- almost marketing to them what it means to be a woman. And that means appealing to men rather than uplifting and being enjoying pleasure and beauty for beauty's sake. And so Drift has this wonderful connection with Mother Nature and she can she can get as high as a kite looking at a sunset or looking into the eyes of her working dog. And she feels beautiful just within the landscape and I wanted to impart that in her character. And at the same time, say to my readers, if you're a female and you've been through these gruesome things that most women, unfortunately, encounter at some point, misogyny and sexism, you can actually transcend it. So I do, I do put drift through some gruelling stuff, but as it's a transcendent moment. Yeah, it is. It ends up really well. There's a strong mystical element which people probably have already picked up on. There's a sense that nature and the spiritual world has its own wisdom, which we can discover if we open ourselves to it. And even the name of the book, I, I didn't understand at the beginning what White Horses was going to refer to, but it has quite an evocative, deeper meaning for Drift in terms of her life. I don't know if it's even something we want to talk about because it might be giving away a storyline, but she's 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 a motherless girl being raised in a situation where her mum disappeared at, at some stage in her life, isn't she? And White Horses have a special meaning for her. Yes, absolutely. So white horses, we've always named the ocean, the white caps on the waves, white horses. So, and I guess when Drift looks out to those white horses, it evokes this kind of mystery of of what's happened in her world. But also when you talk about spirituality, I'm actually studying a Bachelor of Science in Regenerative Agriculture part-time. It's the first of its kind in the world with the University of New South Wales. And I love science. So when you, science is now looking at the holism, at holism and marrying up with spirituality. So effectively, we are actually made of carbon. We are actually made of the same stuff as stars. And so White Horses refers to the fact that we are, in fact, all in one ocean. You may be one wave, Jenny, across there in New Zealand, but I'm part of that same ocean as another wave. So drift being motherless kind of represents, I guess, we're all feeling motherless because we're disconnected from the earth. So her connection with the sea to her mother and then, of course, to the spiritual mother of the land and then the other wise women, Charlie Weatherburn and Wilma, the travelling librarian, we have these wise women come into the story. They're a representation of how women can actually transform the earth. There's, there's, very subtle um, messages in there, particularly about cycles of the moon, 
representations of colour. I studied the clan mothers, the 13 clan mothers, which are in uh, Native American teaching of what each moon of 13 moons of the year represents to women when they would go into their lodges and seek wisdom. So you don't actually feel any of that or see, see any of that in, or you don't see it in the storyline of White Horses right in your face, but it is all embedded there in the research. Yeah. And look, that's what makes it so heartening that the, that White Horses was voted of one as one of Booktopia's top 20 favourite books of 2019. Now, Booktopia, for people who might not know it, is, is a very big Australian book site, probably the biggest Australian book site and readers vote for those books so for your book with with these things that we've been talking about the regenerative agriculture the, the spiritual aspect to come out in the top 20 that's that's really quite a vote of confidence from readers isn't it yes I, and I am so grateful for my readers who are ready to get this because I think our media like to keep us hooked on junk, the same as our junk food systems. They like to keep us hooked on the junk so we keep spending and buying and, you know, all the all of the stuff that, you know, it's just served us well until we were about to become extinct. <laughs> so for my readers to have voted me into that, into that bandwidth of commercialism, I am extraordinarily... Uh, you know, grateful and, uh, you know, to honour my readers for going along with me because, like you say, it's been a 20-year journey and I've grown up as a woman, you know, in that time and I feel like I've had nearly three generations of women growing with me, which has been um, such a special thing. Yeah. The other thing that fascinates me about this whole topic of the Australian fiction market and the rural element is that the vast majority of your readers would be urban, wouldn't they? Because that reflects the population in Australia. It's vastly urban compared with rural. So you're educating the rural population. (laughs) Well, yes, I get emails from people who are using less chemical on their land or they're grazing their animals differently or they're even being kinder to their husband because they can see will benefit them. So there's that But the urban readers say that I do take them on a journey and it does, I've had people say they now shop differently as a result. So they just don't go into the massive corporate huge supermarket and buy a a carrot that is nutritionally deficient. I've changed their their kind of awareness around shopping, which is that, again, it comes down to storytelling and the power of that. And I have to say, in the science that I've been studying and the soil people that I work with, I work with a not-for-profit called Carbon 8. So it talks about farmers putting 8% carbon into their soil. And if we all did that, we would sequester and stabilise all the the, um, industrial emissions we've put out. But I have one of the devices the scientist is coming up is that it will be a handheld app. You can wave it over a a piece of fruit or vegetable and it can tell you the nutrient density. The study that he did recently, he, he compared a supermarket carrot with a market garden carrot. You would have to eat 200 supermarket carrots to get the same nutritional um, value out of the one carrot that was grown in healthy soil. So I, in talking about books, I always verge off, veer off into soil. And I apologise to my beautiful interviewers like you, Jenny, but this is what underpins all of it. And so for me to be able to get my book into an urban person's hand to say, go to a local farmer's market and ask 
if the soil was alive that this food was grown in, then that is powerful, really is. Yeah. Look, you're preaching to the converted here, I must admit. <laughs> um, you referred to, you know, that life delivers some nasty curly things now and then, and you had a particular experience of that which has been very generously shared with your readers. You, you had... A divorce, you lost the farm that you were working on, you spent a couple of years in deep soul work as a result of that experience and out the other end came a painfully honest memoir, a wonderful book called Down the Dirt Roads, which was long listed for the Tasmanian Premier's Award. So it once again attracted a lot of attention. It's a personal story which gave an, a really transparent insight into what rural women are facing up to. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It must have obviously been an extremely painful thing to really open up and talk about in public. Yes, it certainly was. And I wanted to do it with love because I believe everybody that comes into our life is our teacher. So I didn't want to make anybody else wrong in the process of what happening, what happened. But basically because of my gender, my father opted to keep my ex-husband on the land. So I've effectively had to leave what I would have, what I feel was my spirit place, my childhood home where I used to ride my pony and go for runs and hug trees. And, and so I've effectively had to rebuild my life with my children away from that place. And I wanted to share that story just to say to other women, if you are cast out because of your gender, it's a chance to grow and it's a chance to find your power, not in a, an angry and aggressive way, but really find your power. And um, I think in that 10-year journey, it's still painful. It, I still miss that land. I still feel disconnect from where I ought to be in the world, but it's given me such what I would call a post-traumatic growth phase of regenerating land elsewhere and knowing that I am exactly where I need to be at the exact right moment and everything that's happened to me up to this point is meant to be. So there's surrender and acceptance and also the gift that I can tell story again to help other people heal. Over the period that you've been engaged in your writing, have you noticed any change for how things are for women, you know, quotes down on the farm. How would you measure your progress? And I mean, your generic, generically as a, as a, as a, a woman measure that change? Well, I've been fortunate enough to, in the process of having the trauma in my life, seek a new tribe. And I've discovered the regenerative agricultural tribe, where if you before when I was a rural journalist, you'd go into a farmer meeting and it was all men, majority men, and they'd be sitting with the body language, you know, like that kind of closed off body language and whoever was presenting, that they're tough nuts to crack. And farmers who go to war every day, which is what farmers do, they put on their boots generally and they go out and spray and kill everything to grow one monocrop, of course you're going to be hardened like that. So what I've noticed by stepping into the regenerative ag world, it's usually 50-50, there's men, there's women, gender isn't even an issue. We are just so excited by what we're discovering um, that, that regenerative agriculture, it actually regenerates 
the individual, the family, the farm, the profit margins. It regenerates the ecology. So, so I've noticed that huge change in the last 10 years and it's, it's, it's been such a godsend that, that I found my tribe in that. Yes. I think now is the time for you to tell us about your own regenerative agriculture project. You've, you're rejuvenating 100 acres of what you describe as brutalised land in Richmond, Tasmania, aren't you? Tell us about that and what is your dream for that land? Oh, well, my, I have to admit to my beautiful partner, Daniel, he, he's one of those men who's really, he's very masculine, but he's also balanced in his energy and so much so that all the animals that we have on that land come running to him because he has such a beautiful energy. So with our land, we took it on three years ago now and it had been, it's the longest continuously farmed land since Whitefella turned up in Australia. So it's, it's in an area where the grain was shipped out to Sydney to get them through the famine years in the late 1700s, um, early 1800s. So the land that we walked onto had been leased, it had been cropped, it sprayed, the soil was dead. It took us three years to find an earthworm. But using these regenerative holistic principles, we have used aloe burn pole merinos, which are a lovely merino that are suited to the Australian environment, and our friends bred those and we brought 30 down from what we call mainland Australia. So we have those and then we have our cow ladies, they're Dexters, and they're little light smaller frame cattle and these animals are being mob grazed so we're moving them daily and in the space of moving them daily we're also using that grazing to regenerate the soil and the soil biology is coming back to life. The only input that we've used is a product called Nutrisoil which is like a worm juice and a friend of mine that's her family product. So it's and we're following the advice of a New Zealand woman called uh, Nicole Masters, who's written a book called For the Love of Soil. And she is a master in um, regenerating soil. She's doing that on a global scale with farmers all around the world. So our dream for, we call it Ripple Farm Partners, because we want to ripple the ideas out, is to convert a huge shearing shed into an information space so we can have field days and we can showcase not only what the profits look like for farming this way, but also how the land feels. When you actually nurture a diverse ecology, you can actually feel it in your body. And so we're hoping that we can restore the wetland, restore, you know, we're planting thousands of trees. And this all kind of has to happen in and around caring for kids and writing a novel. But, but it's happening slowly and it's happening synergistically and beautifully. I've been fascinated by the the no-dig organic market gardening that's happening now where they're getting intensive, like they turn over, say, eight different crops over, over a growing season without any chemical fertilisers. You know, there's a, quite a bit of that going on in New Zealand and I've become a bit of aware of it over the last couple of years. And it's one of those things that I think, oh, if I was 40 years younger, this is the, this is the, but it sounds like this is the similar thing on a bigger scale. Would you be able to make uh, that a living out of a hundred acres if it was farmed right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. You could make a living out of one acre. You really could if you're vertically stacking and if you're working within the principles of Mother Nature. Mother Nature is, she is so abundant. So people often say, oh, this wouldn't work on a broad scale or this wouldn't work, you know, 
you know, in my garden, but it does. And we're seeing whole buildings converted in cities to growing food. And I think the the key to it, though, Jenny, is soil. Is is that mm. universe of soil? And if you obviously you're a gardener, but that you know they say there's six billion living organisms in one teaspoon of healthy soil. So you yeah. you if if you get that balance right, then we sequester carbon, we put nutrients back into our food, we support other life, not just to feed humans, but, you know, other creatures as well. So mm. it's the, the beauty of the internet now is we're able to share this information and we're not attached to somebody trying to sell us something. Farmers are sharing with other farmers. For example, in White Horses, the property, the planet, which readers will discover, it's the most beautiful place on the planet, but that, that was inspired by Ian and Di Hegarty, who are the biggest really large grain croppers over in WA and they're farming regeneratively and they're restoring salt-affected land that had been locked up and left. You know, it was just marginal land that farmers had given up on. And, and so when you read about the planet, you can actually know that, that there are people actually doing that in, in the harshest um, climates of Western Australia. Look, that's lovely. And with the show notes that go with this podcast episode, we put links into all of those sorts of reference points for people who want to follow through. So I'll make sure that we get the link for them and put that in. I mean, that's fascinating to me. I didn't know that it was a real farm that you'd based it on. Mm. I mean, they, they, well, with the planet, that's more looking at holistic systems about renewable energy and food supply and urban farming. But the Hegarty's give if people think it's what I'm writing about is fanciful or fictional, the Hegarty's are actually a, a, you know, grassroots movement that are, you know, a loving, beautiful couple that are honouring the earth, but also they're producing grain that is so much more nutrient dense than the grain that the, the, the grain that's coming out of other farming systems. So yeah, it's a case of watch this space and I'm, I'm committed to telling story around it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, turning to your wider career, away perhaps from the books, is there one thing you've done with your writing career, the writing side of it, more than any other that you'd credit with being the secret of your success? Oh, well, I think success can be measured in so many ways, but I think success is when your your children adore you and they're comfortable telling you everything, particularly when mine are teenagers now, and that you know, peaceful in your space from the cows right through to the chickens. So for me as a writer, I think Julie Cameron's The Artist's Way transforms. So I do morning pages. The other thing that transformed my awareness around the process of writing with was Dr. Joe Dispenza. He's he's into neuroscience. So once you understand brainwave states, you can start to understand where you go as a writer and then you don't have to push so hard. You can just become in a brainwave state that channels what you need to know without knowing it, if that really makes sense. But And also Dr. Bruce Lipton, he wrote a book called The Biology of Belief. And if you believe that you're going to get writer's block, you will get writer's block. But if you believe that there's a there's a creative vortex out there, I think Elizabeth Gilbert refers to it as big magic, but if you know that there's this creative vortex out there that is abundant and you're still in your mind enough to tap it into your heart, then, then your writing world is your oyster. 
It's fantastic. What were your expectations when you started out as an author with Jillaroo? And when you look back, have have they been fulfilled or is there something completely different that's happened? Oh, I think when you're in it, you can't see it. But looking back, I think, wow, what a journey and what an incredible push through to keep writing no matter what. It's almost like my novels have been my therapy at the same time, which has kind of been, you know, a healthy kind of therapy. It's better than becoming an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) So, I, yeah, I think what I would most love to do next is to crack the United States market, which is something I haven't done. I think I've, I've put that tag of mother first so much that I've not actually pushed myself out into the marketplace. So I'd love to reach the US because I think there's so many farmers who are suffering right now and their chemical farming system with the genetically modified crops that, you know, will cope with Roundup, they're, they're destroying their whole systems faster than we are so that's why not to become a bestseller in the US I want to crack the United States so I can find some farmers that are willing and ready to change it's fantastic look turning to Rachel as reader because we are starting to come to the end of our time together tell us about your reading habits do you binge read I mean we're really focusing a bit more on the binge reading side of things because we we're people who enjoy generic fiction or genre fiction what are your reading tastes and have you got things you'd like to recommend oh well I I don't read fiction while I'm writing my own fiction because the narrative voice interferes there and if I'm writing really really reading really wonderful fiction you kind of get a uh, inferiority complex. <laughs> oh, can't write like that. So I will. I cannot stop with an Alexander McCall Smith book. So the the number one detective agency, the number one ladies detective agency. I love his work. My daughter has reading delays because she has cerebral palsy, so her eye muscles aren't so good. So she read me one of his children's books, and it was it was so good. I, I you know I wanted to read more. So from his children's books right through. So I would binge read him. I find that I mostly read fiction. I mentioned for the love of soul. I, I've read. I'm reading Tara Westover's Educated, which is a memoir an American girl growing up in a very fundamentalist family, which is fascinating. And I read, for research, I'm reading Raising the Skirt and it's the unsung power of the vagina. So there you go. (laughs) And I've said that word out loud, which is what the ladies, we need to do according to this book. So I'm reading a lot of um, feminist literature, not in in the God is good uh, let's celebrate harvest sense. So I binge on non-fiction simply because while I'm writing fiction, and uh, my go-to is Alexander McCall Smith and Kate Nunn. I really enjoy Kate Nunn's work as well. She's put some lovely books out that I've enjoyed. You mentioned the name Joe Dispenser. Does has he? Is that a he or a she? And have they written anything? Ah, uh, yes, Doctor Joe. He's he's Joe with a J O E Dispenser. Uh, yes, he has. I'm just having a look on my shelf that's right here, but his book's not here. He has ri- he's written numerous books and he's got, he, there's loads of YouTube clips that he's put forward. Okay, oh, good. We'll be able to find, if people want to follow up with that, we'll be able to point them in the right direction then. Look, that's great. 
having looked back over this kind of wonderful arc that you've been on, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you'd change? And if so, what? Goodness, that is a very wonderful question. Would I, I would I would have been less hard on myself. I think I was trying to be you know, a brilliantly perfect mummy. I was trying to be, you know, and everything to everyone. I think I probably would have stood my ground and said, you know what, you're bringing me a cup of tea. I'm getting fresh flowers. These are things that I do now uh, because I've found my voice enough to say, time out for mother. But <laughs> back when I really had very little self-esteem left after the experience that I had with the the chiefs of my tribe who who didn't protect me. Yeah, I was very hard on myself and I think a lot of women do it. I blamed myself for what happened. But coming through that, I now see it's a cultural flaw. So, yeah, I just would have been much kinder to myself and let myself a little, yeah. I think we can probably all identify with that a little bit. So looking over the next 12 months, what's next? What's happening for Rachel the writer? I think you've got a new book you're just finishing now, aren't you? What have you got under development, say, for the next 12 or 18 months? Well, we've, of course, we've always got the farm. We've got some multi-species feeding going in there. But in terms of writing, I just, it was due today, delivered a manuscript called Milking Time. And it's it's about a Tasmanian girl that in the dairy industry, her fa- family are dairy dairy farmers, and she's so angry with them. She becomes a vegan. So it's wonderful d- use of humour to showcase how if we polarise one another and exist on opposite ends of the scale, like I'm a meat animal product eater and I'm a vegan or I'm a vegetarian and we clash heads, we're not serving ourselves. So this next book is about the divine feminine, the raising of the skirts because that's how the ancients blessed their harvest was the women would go out in the field and raise their skirts. So my character, and that kind of book to deliver that kind of message needs to be very nuanced. So I think I'm going to have 12 to 18 months of trying to soften that, like you say, with white horses, there's a there's a big message in there, but it has to be done with love and heart and humour rather than preaching. So yeah, it's a it's going to be a big challenge, but you know, there's there's that mindset again that it's all doable. Yes, yes, yeah. And when when are we likely to see that one published then? Well, I'm not sure. I'm yet to speak to the publishers. COVID did such a sort of a funny log jam with the, the cycling of books mm. through the system. Mm. So mm. they're going to have to read it. They may think this is far too full on for a reader just yet. So it may need 12 months of editing. I've pushed the bar on this one again. I really want to bring my readers with me on it. So yes, hopefully this time next year, hopefully Christmas in um, 2021, we'll, sp- we'll watch this space. It could be earlier. It could have just landed perfectly. <laughs> that's oh, wonderful I know it hasn't <laughs> now I get the real impression that you do like to hear from your readers tell us where they can find you online and how you like to interact with them yes well I'm I call the social media a black hole I think it can absorb far too much of our time so I try not to go on social media but I usually try and post one thing a day on Facebook which for the the Twitterers and the 
the other people, I don't know, you know, the other platforms, I'm very lax on it and I don't understand it, but my Rachel Treasure page at Facebook has just day-to-day stuff about how much washing I've let pile up and, you know, how unclean my floors are. But it also has our animals interact, you know, me interacting with the animals and what Daniel's doing on the farm as well and, you know, even my son getting in the football grand final. So it's a very, it's a lovely way of having a family of readers around me because I've had people that interact there with me. Yeah, We haven't mentioned it at all, but I think that in the past you've been very hot on training dogs, haven't you? You've done quite a bit of dog training. Do you still do any of that today? Oh, yes, I do. I've just got myself a little short-haired border collie who has New Zealand bloodlines. (laughs) Dearest little thing. So on my website I've got a self-published book called Dog Speak, which I, I documented the journey of my dear old Australian Kelpie, Rousey, and how I trained him. So, yes, and we do, we we prescribe by with low-stress stock handling, so everything we do around our livestock is very quiet and very gentle. So, yes, the dog training is ongoing. I don't do it on a large scale to sell dogs. I just do it because I love it. And um, this dear little dog is, she's only six months, but she's, yeah, she's coming along. So you do use her to help control the animals, but you do it in a very quiet way. Well, we will do. That'd be like, you know, to send her on a job now, it'd be like asking a kindergarten kid to, to move a car. So we, I don't start my dogs until they're fully mature, but she comes with me. And, um, if you imagine holding up, sort of a, a, tapping a balloon, in, keeping it in the air, that all that's all that the working dog needs to do is just keep the bubble that is the livestock kind of in the air and gu- guiding where you're going. So, so we're using her energy from a very large distance rather than force. And our animal yeah. will follow Daniel anywhere. So he just has to walk ahead and they go. Yes. That's wonderful. Look, Rachel, it's been fantastic talking. It really has. Thank you so much. This will be appearing in a couple of weeks before Christmas, so I'll let you know ahead of time when it's going to be up. Perfect, Jenny. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, my dear. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him 
at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.